And welcome to episode 58 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me as usual is Shane. How are you this afternoon, this morning, I guess? Sorry, we've changed the time. <laughs> I'm good. How are you, sir? I'm doing awesome. So we're two amateur astronomers, and basically being an amateur astronomer, that just means that we love to do astronomy. We are not professional astronomers, um, but we've been doing it a long time, uh, the both of us, and uh, we just do it for fun. And this podcast is one of the ways that we share that fun with you. So Shane, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, I always start just by saying, you know, like, how was your week and whatever, but I'm going to ask you a question first. How cold, can you guess how cold it was when I was observing Mars from three to 6am yesterday morning? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I, I didn't cheat. Um, I was on the Regina Reddit yesterday and I noticed somebody posted that it was something like minus 20 with the wind chill, which has, I think it was the coldest day in October, that early in October in like 100 years or 80 years or something like that. Yeah, well, we haven't been observing that long. But let me tell you, that was the coldest observing session I've ever had in October, except for the session that you and I bailed on, which also went to minus 20 degrees Celsius with the wind chill. When I started my session, it was minus 10.5. And I thought this won't be too bad because I checked the wind and it was only light winds. And I walked out the back because I forgot to do something in the yard before, at, like I had uh, something I had to do astronomically, take something apart and then bring it around to the front. And uh, I walked out the front garage door and I was just like, this wind is ridiculous. It was probably like gusting up to 25 or 30. Um, and that, yeah, certainly at minus 10 and a half, uh, that feels chilly. And so I had to set up in the lee of my house. <laughs> <laughs> and uh i did three hours though i feel like you know i toughed it out wasn't too bad yeah you know that i don't mind being outside when it's like in minus 20 degree weather without a wind yeah but if it's minus 20 due to the wind it is a completely different ball game you know like that can just it just goes right through you and it cools you off so much faster i find so if yeah. you can't get protection from the wind no ugh, you know that's ugly yeah, um, it was good. That was the best morning I've had in a couple of weeks, though. So, uh, oh. yeah, yeah, it was good. How, but how was your week? Did you get any observing in? Nothing with a telescope, unfortunately. Oh, really? okay. I, yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I saw Venus and the moon, what was that, Thursday morning or Wednesday morning? They were quite close. Um, okay. And it was a, a thin crescent. Um, so that was quite neat to see. But... Um, yeah, I didn't get out. Uh, my dog had uh, a little bit of an emergency this week too, which kind of oh, cramped no. my style, but uh, she's okay. Uh, however, it did eat into my telescope time kind of Friday night, Saturday morning. Uh, yeah. But oh well, you know, I'm that's sure life. you hear that. Yeah. No, yeah. No, like I say, she's okay. So good. Well, that's, <laughs> so no that's worries, the main but, thing. Yeah. That's yeah. the main thing. So, and I know I was wondering, because I think the last session you, you were out on was just over a week ago. So it was like, I think just seven or eight days since, since you were last out. And I was out that night too. And that's one of the worst observing sessions that I ever had. And that, you know, a session that poor can almost turn you off observing for, for a little bit because um, like I found I was, I actually got, I shouldn't say it's not like I kind of sort I got a headache observing because the sky was so unsteady. Um, Mars was kind of etch-a-sketching around the sky. Um, yeah, yeah. and, and it was clear, it looked like it was going to be good, but, um, that kind of session, like I got a headache, I had to come in, uh, took an Advil, 
went for a walk, came back, tried to do it again. It just was, was so poor. And then we had uh, another night that didn't look and, and wasn't really that much better. It was, it was just marginally better than that. It was better enough that the Mars wasn't, you know, sort of moving around so much. You were going to get a headache, but you couldn't really see that much on it. So I ended up, uh, end up making good use of the time though. I did a comparison of those two uh, 80 millimeter telescopes that I have. So we, we can talk about that. So, yeah, so how yeah, was, oh, sorry, how was Mars and the moon? <laughs> <laughs> Mars and the moon? Or you mean mm. Venus and mm. the moon? Venus yeah. and the moon. Yes. It, it was just a visual observation. From my frostbite. <laughs> yeah, no worries. It, it was just a visual observation. So, you know, yeah. nothing in terms of detail to report, but yeah. the moon did have some nice earth shine. Um, it was in the early morning twilight as well. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, Venus was quite bright, twinkling away. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's really all I have to report on that. So what um, is what is earth shine? This was actually, um, it's funny you mentioned this because um, I, I say a student, but I teach an astronomy class. And uh, sometimes people refer to themselves as my students, which, which I get a, a big, you know, uh, sort of chuckle over because it's really not that way at all. I, I tend to learn as much from them often as maybe hopefully they're learning from me. Um, but I had one, one individual who was asking about uh, what the sort of circular glow was that we see sort of extending around the moon, which, which is the Earth's shine. So what, what is that chain exactly? Yeah, maybe I'll describe it first. So what we're talking about, when the moon is in any of its phases, there's the obvious bright part that we all see. But sometimes you can make, you can, you can see like the complete circle of the moon <clears throat> and a little bit of like some dim detail on the unilluminated part of the moon. And that, that kind of dark part that's partially visible, that we're, what you're seeing is earth shine, which is light from the sun being reflected off of earth and kind of lighting up a little bit of that dark side of the moon. The real yeah. bright side of the moon is being lit by the sun. That's sunlight being reflected to earth. But um, the earth shine is kind of a neat phenomenon. And uh, it it really varies, you know, like it it's sometimes really prominent. And then sometimes it's, it's non-existent just depending on angles, you know, with earth mm -hmm. and the moon and the sun and all of that stuff. So um, it, it can make for some interesting observations visually for, mm -hmm. with a camera, even with a telescope. It's kind of, it's neat to see it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, kind of one of the points that, that I think we're making here is that, you know, uh, your, your week just, you know, you know, family things going on with your, with your pet and, uh, you know, you just weren't able to get the scope up, but you were still able to kind of go out and enjoy the sky and you can sort of see this phenomena on the moon without anything. And you're also able to see, uh, the planets, uh, with your eye and kind of, track their progress uh, around the sky. So uh, I know that's really enjoyable. So there's some mornings I get up and for whatever reason, it's not working out for me. So I just go out and take a, take a look for five or 10 minutes, then go back to bed sometimes. So we yeah. start working. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the reason I, I mentioned it too, that I really didn't do much, uh, you know, telescope observing. Um, and, and this happens, like, I, I think you and I observe probably more than the average Joe out there. Um, however, there's still times in our lives where you and I, where we just can't get out and observe yeah. and it just happens. Right. Yep. And, uh, it can be frustrating, but, um, it's all about perspective. And, you know, this week I'm hoping to log a few more nights. Uh, I haven't looked at our forecast, but it's been a little you know, crappy lately. Hopefully things get clearer in the coming week. Yeah. I, I tend just to focus on the very immediate future, which I tend to 
to plan out months or years ahead of time for a variety of different things in life. Um, but for, for observing this Mars opposition, I'm like, what is happening in three hours? What is happening in the next hour? And just kind of watch, uh, watch the weather, set my alarm at night and get up and check the weather, get out there. And if it's looking good, I observe. And it, it just kind of like really living in the moment, which, uh, which I enjoy quite a bit, you know, that's fun. Yeah. Well, and it helps to be fluid with this stuff because even, even with, as far as the forecasts go, uh, the accuracy sometimes, you know, isn't there, right? So sometimes it may not look good according to the forecast, but you just have to mm-hmm. go out and do it because sometimes the the sky is better than, you know, what you might expect or sometimes it's worse, but uh, the, hence, you know, the, the need to be fluid, you know, with your approach to observing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And like this week, there was, there was one evening, it was, in fact, it was sort of like the reverse of, of the forecast. There was one evening that was supposed to be good I ended up having broken clouds. I don't remember what night it was. It must have been like Monday or Tuesday or something. Anyway, I ended up with broken clouds and poor seeing, just marginally better than that one last week um, where Mars was just dotting around the sky. And then I had two mornings. Friday was supposed to be decent, and Saturday was supposed to be kind of like uh, maybe broken cloud or maybe even cloudy. Um, and then, uh, you know, so that Friday morning you know, I decided to, uh, to use my manual mount and, uh, instead of the Skywatcher AZ GTI tracking mount that I have. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, I can't believe how spoiled I've become by the Skywatcher AZ GTI. <laughs> and it's like, now, whenever I talk to another amateur astronomer, I'm like, you know, they're talking about something to do with a mount and they have, you know, a lot of us have these smaller telescopes. I'm like, you should just get that mount. Because, you know, like I have a friend and he is in a north facing balcony in a major city uh, in Toronto and uh, and he doesn't have a tracking mount because typically you need to um, point out a bunch of stars and and his horizon is very obscured. So um, he can only get the planets at certain times and whatever. But I'm like, dude, you can get this mount and just you can just point it to stuff and it will track just as good as you need it to to track. So I'm I'm. The more I use that mount, the more impressed I am with it. So uh, anyway, um, let's see. I kind of have my notes out of order, but um, I've I've been working on my sketching. Um, some of my sketches haven't been as good. I'm not sketching all the detail I'm seeing, and I'm sort of struggling with how to uh, get the detail down that I'm seeing on Mars. So um, I don't know if you were following the, the thread that I've had going with uh uh, Jerry and, and Mike on the uh, Astro Sketchers list, but uh, Jerry and Mike are real, like these guys are like artists. I mean, without any stretch of the imagination, yeah, they are yeah. bonafide, um, you know, the works that they're creating of what they see on Mars is, you know, gallery worthy, um, amazing stuff. They've been in published uh, publications and all kinds of stuff. They're very well-known people. I am not, I'm simply a, Uh, a hack when it comes to some of this stuff. So, um, but they were sketching the uh, South polar cap much larger than, than I was and uh, like surprisingly larger. And so I was trying to sort of uh, sort this out. So, and, and this, this is a little bit out of order, but um, earlier in the week on that Monday or Tuesday, I set up uh, my two 80 millimeter F fives. Now these are super inexpensive telescopes. Um, I got one for 
$80 or $90. And I got one for $30 um, that was included with the uh, Skywatcher mount that I bought this past year. And I was surprised when I looked through those instruments, how large the polar cap seemed. Um, because they're 80 millimeters. And when I was observing with my 100 millimeter telescope, the polar cap was much, much smaller. Now, in the 100 millimeter, the four inch telescope, it was very sharp and like clearly defined, but it would kind of pop in and out of visibility in bad moments of seeing, I couldn't see it at all. Um, but when I did see it, it was very, very sharp. Whereas it was never that sharp in the 80 millimeters or three inch telescopes, um, but it was kind of blurry. And uh, I noticed this, I was on uh, cloudy nights and there was uh, an observer named David Gray. And now this guy does some amazing observations. And he actually had noted this as well using um, a three inch. He, I don't think he said what three inch he was using, but I actually uh, went and I've, I've got his image up here uh, for you to see now if you're, oh, am I not sharing? But anyway, did you see it in the notes? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I've got the notes up. Yeah. Good. And yeah, and he actually drew this big kind of giant circle around the pole and then like this little shading. And that's kind of what, what it looked like to me, maybe not as, as exaggerated as he made it, but I think it's an excellent representation. And then he, uh, he used his 16 inch dull Kirkham and then he, he did this very beautiful uh, detailed sketch showing how small that polar cap was. So uh, that, and that was sort of my experience as well, using like a higher quality slightly larger instrument, the, the polar cap sort of oddly seemed uh, quite a bit smaller. So I thought, I thought that was neat. So I've been having this ongoing conversation because uh, some other more experienced observers and, and definitely better sketchers had just drawn it larger. So we were discussing about the fact that perhaps uh, they were drawing it larger because it was brighter. And with, uh, with astronomy, like if you look at a star chart, um, things that are brighter will be represented by, for example, like a star would be represented by a larger circle, right? Mm -hmm. So you have Cirrus will be like the largest circle you have on the star chart because it's the brightest star in the sky. Um, and, and different stars will just have varying uh, circle sizes based on, on their stellar magnitude. That said, they're all actually the same size uh, through the instrument. They're just brighter. But how do you, how do you represent that? Um, when you're just, just using a, uh, like a, like a sort of two-dimensional sheet. So, so anyway, they, we were discussing that and, uh, kind of going back and forth. And then the other thing I found out, I'm not sure where it is in my, in my notes here, like I said, I'm uh, a little bit disorganized, but, uh, I found in my notes, uh, that I was actually seeing, you know, some of the desert regions and that was kind of neat. And then uh, I decided that I would do a comparison um, between the Pentax XO and the Hugens six millimeter that I received for free with one of the telescopes. Oh, I love this. <laughs> David versus Goliath here. You know, yeah, so ex the Hugens exactly. is, is often considered to be, you know, a very cheap, inexpensive eyepiece yeah. of low quality Whereas the Pentex XO is considered to be one of the, if not the finest five millimeter eyepiece ever made for like yeah. contrast and planetary observing. Yeah. So the difference is basically uh, the Hugens is essentially a free eyepiece. Some might argue that you're, you're really being double billed for it. And, uh, and then the Pentax, I don't know. I think it goes for about 
has it gone for up to like a thousand of our Canadian dollars? Have I, am I accurate in that? Hundreds of um, Canadian dollars anyway. Yeah. You know, I think the last one I saw went for just under 700, but um, okay, there it's, you go. it's a super expensive eyepiece, but yeah, it, you I didn't know, it's not for. made anymore. It's no. very good. Yeah. Um, and the Hugens is, is a very old design too, yeah. which, you know, from, part of the interesting the dynamic, yeah. yeah, part, part of the interesting dynamic here is, is the Hugens is like, so when people talk about like a high contrast planetary eyepiece, they want as little glass in the eyepiece as possible because the glass is where you have light loss and scatter and, and things that kind of mess up your view. The, the Hugens mm. is a very simple eyepiece. Like, I think it's just three pieces of glass in there or is it even yeah. just two? I should look that up. But anyway, I'll stop uh, interrupting your, your, no, your no. shootout here. <laughs> not, not at all. Not at all. I was kind of, I, I, I mostly, actually, I did it more, more for you than for anybody else because I just thought you would find that kind of comical. Um, I got to say this, you know, and it, it reminds me when I was, um, I, I was an alpine uh, ski racer for a long time and pretty technical skier and I remember I, I showed up at the ski hill once uh, early in the season and um, it had opened and I was I was uh, maybe I was like 13 or 14 and I had these brand new skis um, like my first really high-end pair of skis and the hill was just covered in like rocks and grass like it was there's no way I'm taking my brand new skis up there they're going to get dinged and and destroyed so I, uh, I went to the rental, the ski rental place and I bought these rent or borrowed these rental skis or they, or they, they were letting them out for, for free or a dollar or something because they, you know, most people just didn't want to wreck their gear. And, uh, anyway, I was surprised that I, you know, you notice a difference, but it's not like that much of a difference. And it was sort of a similar experience here where, you know, it, it's your, it's your experience at the eyepiece that comes through more than more than the eyepiece itself. Like for sure, hundred percent, the Pentax is a better eyepiece. It's, it would be pretty clear to anybody that you can see more with it, but how much more? 10%. <laughs> I could see about 10% more with the eyepiece that cost hundreds and hundreds of dollars versus the one that, uh, that you can get for free. Um, in fact, you can't even buy these eyepieces. They're just, they're just produced specially to be given away, um, with the very most, uh, lowest end of of astronomical instruments so i think it was one of our one of our listeners was asking about um you know sort of getting the most out of your equipment or, or whatever and you know hearing that we use some some specialized and fancy equipment um but yeah i mean really it is it is that experience under the sky and the enjoyment of of doing it and the patience for waiting for the good seeing um which in many respects that that's going to give you uh more uh and better uh views than, uh, than spending the money on, on gear. And we've seen that you and I have both seen people that, that come into this, um, hobby or, or as I like to think of it, the sport of amateur astronomy <laughs> and think that they're, they're going to go and buy like, um, a bunch of really expensive, like ethos eyepieces or some sort of fancy big piece of equipment. And then they're going to be right at that, at that point. But, uh, but that doesn't happen. It, it would be, you know, the same thing as, as, uh, as me buying really fancy, uh, paints and thinking I'm going to be like Van Gogh or, or, uh, E.C. Escher's or E.C. Escher's or somebody like that. Right. You know, it's not mm -hmm. going to happen, right. No mm -hmm. matter how much I spend on paint, I'm never going to produce a Salvador Dali. Um, yeah. and, and it's, unfortunately it's that kind of thing. It's, it's more like, uh, I think, I think astronomy, amateur astronomy is in many ways more like, like an art than a, than a science. And, uh, no matter what you spend on the gear and 
I did have um, one individual who, and, and it's just a, it's just an experience, just like getting experience at the eyepiece, I think is, is the most thing. So, so yeah, uh, certainly you could see the difference, but I bet you, if you took somebody who was brand new to astronomy, I, I don't think they could see the difference. So I yeah. can't say I can really knock that uh, cheap, absolute most generic, absolute cheapest eyepiece compared to, to the most, one of the most expensive eyepieces you can get. Um, yeah. So I, I did a little shootout. This is a while ago. I can't remember if I told you this, but uh, a comparison between a Hugens, a Kellner and an ortho orthoscopic oh, yeah. eyepiece. All Sounds like a joke. A Hugens, Kellner and ortho walk into a bar. <laughs> Says the bartender. I need a glass. <laughs> did, did you read my article on that? <laughs> that's, that's exactly the title I, I think, chose. I think I, I did. did an editorial. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I okay. think I read so. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> I anyway. Uh, I'm just putting it back at you. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate it. Um, so, like, I I had uh, come across uh, some Zeiss Jenna Huygen or Hugens. I I always mess his name up. Hugens. Um, and I, I got them for a really good price, like a 25 millimeter and a 16 millimeter for, I think, 75 Canadian dollars combined. Uh, I had a Takahashi uh, Kellner and then the orthoscopic. So they were all around that 16 millimeter. Um, mm-hmm. No, actually, it was the 25 millimeter is what I used. Yep. And um, I would rank them ortho number one, Kellner number two, Huygens number three, but like it was almost like one a one b one c in a way um the real noticeable differences so let me say this on axis so in the middle of the eyepiece there was very little difference if any and i find that with just about any eyepiece where i really noticed the differences were with the eye relief like the orthoscopic just had the better eye relief it was more comfortable um the field of view Mm -hmm. so the 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 huygens hugens um kellner little more not as wide as the orthoscopic and mm-hmm. then i also noticed a difference just in the tone um like i i felt like the orthoscopic provided the most neutral colorless view um, mm-hmm. so the, all of this was on the moon so through the ortho the moon was just ice gray like yep. you know no no doubt about it um and then i felt like going from the kellner to the hugens um just progressively it became a warmer view so like a mm-hmm. little more like of a maybe I would say almost an orangey tinge in it, yep. but man, great eyepieces, all of them. And you can get these Hugens and these Kellners for really good prices. And you can yep. even get some really well-made ones, you know, by Takahashi, by Zeiss, um, you know, that, that won't, won't cost you an awful lot of money. Now I've also heard, and, and I haven't done a lot of, you know, comparisons or testings, but that the Hugens really, really work well in long focal length telescopes like F15 and, and higher, okay. um, yeah, that they help sense. to remove some of the chromatic aberration and, and, and reduce yeah. some of the color. So I haven't really played around with um, that type of observing, but mm-hmm. there you go. Uh, so the Hugens is a, a two a two element eyepiece. Um, okay. So there's only two pieces of glass in there. Uh, huh. So it is a very, very simple design. Yeah. Um, yeah. Made in the 1660s. Pretty interesting. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if you think about it, uh, it's, it's interesting. I was, I was interested to observe Mars with it um, for, for one main reason, not really to do the comparison, but Christian Hugens in, uh, in 1659 um, began uh, sketching Mars for the first time and then progressively made better sketches over time using that type of eyepiece. So 
um, I was just interested for, for that alone. Um, let's see. I got to say, though, like comparing the two telescopes, like definitely optically, they're, they're pretty similar, almost identical. Um, so I have a Skywatcher that came with my Skywatcher mount. And then I had bought a Mead uh, last year. And you were kind enough to help modify the mead by blackening the edges so that I'm not getting as much reflection and, and some other things with it. Really appreciate that. But one of the reasons why I, I had asked you to do that is that uh, I don't really have as many tools and I could not get that dew shield off the mead. It was just mm. like stuck on there and it, and it still doesn't come off very easily. Um, and I did put a two inch focuser on it. The Skywatcher, it just comes apart really, really easy. So I was really happy with that. And why, why would you bother taking apart one of these telescopes? You need to kind of modify them a little bit to get the most out of them. Like there's a few edges in there that need to be uh, blackened or darkened. So you're not getting as much reflected light. And then as well, often the, um, the lenses are in this uh, plastic uh, sort of screw uh, that goes onto the front of the telescope. And often it's just screwed too tight. And you need to back that off just a little bit so that the lenses um, are able to kind of sort of float a little bit more free and, and not have uh, uh, this, this sort of pressure on them, which can, can degrade uh, the image. So wh what I really like with the Skywatcher is that out in the field, I just did in the house, but out, outside, I could very easily whip the dew shield off and actually adjust that depending on the conditions. And oh, nice. so I was able to get about another 25 or 20 power out of it. Um, and, and have really, really sharp images. I tried stopping them down to 40 millimeter and go back, back and forth. Cause there's like a, like a lens cap that has a lens cap in it. And I think mm -hmm. it's like a 40 or 42 millimeters. I, I didn't notice that much improvement going, going like that. Um, just didn't really seem that much of a difference. And I ended up comparing the Hugens 20 with the Pentax 20 I actually noticed way more difference especially at F5, I think like you were saying, long focal length, um, these Hugens will perform better. The edge of the Hugens in, uh, in an F5 were, I mean, disappearingly wild. And, yeah. and the Pentax uh, XW20, which doesn't get a lot of rave reviews, just seemed so, so much better. Um, there, was, there was no comparison. Um, yeah, those, those ones I did notice a huge difference. Um, yeah. And the and telescopes, just, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Just a note about that. Like that, that's the reason why these, you know, more modern eyepieces have like eight, nine, 10 pieces of glass in them. Yeah. Every piece of glass serves to correct an aberration or to provide a wider field of view mm. um, or to improve the eye relief. Um, so it's not surprising that the Pentax XW would really outperform the Huygens or the Hugens, uh, especially, you know, at the edge, because with just two pieces of glass, it's not meant to really correct, you know, that part of the, the field of view, especially in a fast telescope like that. So, um, yeah. you know, that's, that's the reason that modern eyepieces keep adding more and more glass essentially. Yeah. The other comparison I did, this sort of like my week of comparisons. It wasn't, I didn't like really set out to do any of this. I just kind of, I could just kind of did it for whatever reasons. Um, I also did a lengthy comparison between the Bader contrast booster filter and the Celestron Mars filter and uh, came to, to interesting conclusions. I definitely, I'm glad I have both of them because they both do some things very well. 
and they both have some limits. Um, so I tend to prefer the Celestrum Mars filter a little bit better. It makes Mars appear almost like a purpley orangey red and it's pretty extreme. And I hear some people don't like that. I actually kind of like it. I didn't think I would at first. When I first looked in, I was like, whoa, this color is super funky. It's almost like a violety, purpley orange. It's a very strange color. I've never seen that color anywhere else. I couldn't tell you where, where or what to compare it to. Mm -hmm. um, but it really shows clouds on Mars um, phenomenally well. So you can really get a good view of, of clouds on Mars. And some of the other uh, details seem to pop out, but really it's, it's almost like a Mars cloud filter for viewing clouds on mm. Mars. Like if there's clouds on Mars, you can see it with that filter very easily. Um, the Bader contrast filter or contrast booster filter cannot see the clouds very well at all with that. Um, but it gives uh, a much sharper and detailed view of the light and dark regions, the albedo features on Mars. We, we talked about in our, our history of observing Mars episode. Um, and you can see the polar caps a little bit easier, which surprised me because I would have thought seeing a polar cap would be more similar to seeing a cloud because the clouds tend to be a lighter color. Here's the difference is that the clouds tend to be more like a bluey white and the, uh, the polar cap, uh, like the South polar cap is what I'm observing now, tends to be like a, like a, I don't know, I want to say like a whitey white, like it's just a pure white. Um, and so there's a difference there and, and each of those filters show uh, different things better. The, uh, like I said, the main limitation of the Celestar Mars filter is the color is wild. It's very psychedelic and, uh, and it blocks a lot of light. So as Mars gets smaller and smaller, um, you know, I probably only got another maybe two, maybe three weeks left with it. Because prior to mid-September, I, I definitely prefer the contrast booster. And once it gets so big and bright in the sky, um, I can block a lot of the light and still, still get everything uh, that's visible on Mars for the most part. The Bader contrast booster lets way more light in. But the limitation of this filter that I find anyway is it has a lot of chromatic aberration or secondary spectral colors so that on one side of the planet, you'll see a bit of a red outline. And on the other side of the planet, you see a bit of a, a blue outline. And there's nothing I can do to focus that out. And it's not in my telescope because when mm -hmm. I don't use a filter at all, I, I don't see that. Um, and I don't know whether it's just shifting the light so much um, that I'm having to take my telescope slightly out of focus. And I've often thought this before with the Takahashi's, especially since, since I mostly observe without filters with them, I, I almost feel like they're just, um, I don't know, they've got the focal point in a, like a sort of a sweet spot. And, uh, and once you start shifting that around too much, um, you know, you, you may introduce like some of that secondary color. So I, I don't know, it could be, could be in the filter. I think it actually is in the filter or it could be uh, just that I'm shifting my, my telescope uh, focus just enough that it's, that it's uh, showing just a minor amount of secondary color. It's not really that much, but I definitely notice it. Yeah. don't know if you've ever yeah. noticed that. So. Well, not so much secondary color, but one thing I noticed observing with the, uh, the TMB super monocentric eyepieces recently 
like those are one of the purest eye pieces you can mm. look through. Um, you know, mm. it's, it's three pieces of glass. They're cemented together. So there's only two air to air surfaces, which is the minimal amount you can have. Um, they are amazing. Whenever I add a filter and I've played around with a few Mars filters, uh, this year, um, as well as the beta contrast filter with uh, Saturn and, and Jupiter is yep. as soon as I put the filter in and it's clean, you know, like the glass is perfect. Like I see scatter, like, like a lot, you know, instantly. Yeah. Um, and for, for Saturn and Jupiter, I didn't, I didn't enjoy really any of the filtered views because I felt like that scatter and just adding more glass between the yeah. eyepiece and the telescope really in, in my case did not benefit me at all. Yeah. Um, now with Mars, um, I do like the Vernon scope. Um, uh, what is that? The magenta filter? The number 30. Um, yeah. Number 30. Yeah. It, it is quite nice. Like I, I like what it does on Mars. However, it does introduce some scatter and some other things I don't like, but you know, the trade-off is worth it to me. Um, now maybe if I wasn't using like such pure eyepieces as the super monos, maybe it wouldn't bother me as much because I think yeah. a lot of eyepieces have that level of scatter in them already. Um, yeah. So adding a filter, I don't know if you'd really, I don't think you'd really notice it to be honest. Um, yeah. So that's my, that's my experience with them. And, and like, you know, if you're to me, this is just like a philosophical belief on my part. Um, uh oh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. Here we go. Get out <laughs> the tablets. <laughs> um, if you're using like minimal eyepieces, like, you know, super monos, like XOs, um, why would you add more glass there? You know, like it just seems yeah. to defeat the whole purpose of using these types of eyepieces. Um, so, yeah. you know, I, I'm very critical when I put a filter in that light path. And if it really doesn't jump out as an improvement, it's gone real quick. And, you know, the only one that's really lived in my eyepiece, so, or like in my, in my observing routine is this uh, magenta filter. Like it, I was really yeah. impressed with that one. Yeah. My, my recommendation, uh, still though, is the, uh, and I felt the exact same, uh, as you do, um, until I moved to the Lumicon, uh, which are put out by Farpoint, uh, now, and, uh, you know, Lumicon is a company that has traded hands so many times, uh, but they do produce these filters and, uh, they're a shot glass and, uh, which is a, a, uh, uh, like a high quality glass. And I think it's dye in the glass. And those ones are just deadly. They're just so, so good. So um, when I use my Pentax uh, 5 millimeter XO, I just leave the orange filter in it because I can see so much on Mars and Venus with that filter. That is almost like a magic filter, um, hmm. the number 21. And the one thing I really like about what Lumicon uh, did it's, it's not the current company that owns it but but you can still get them from farpoint is um, they make a set for smaller instruments that are slightly paler right and they work beautifully often when i'm using uh i use the whatever the light blue is i use that on jupiter and i'll just leave it in like my higher planetary eyepieces when when only jupiter is up and i know when i'm when I'm on Jupiter, I have that filter in and, and that's it. And they just provide such a minimal cast and uh, they're just really invisible. In fact, you've looked through them. Uh, you just yeah. don't know it. Yeah. 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 You've looked yeah. through those filters. You, you wouldn't notice it was there. And I know you have because if you ever looked at a planet through my telescope, 
typically I would have uh, one of those filters in. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. Um, that's a good point, right? Uh, some of not all filters are created equally and no. um, some of the cheaper filter sets probably won't be as satisfying as no. uh, the more expensive ones, but there's a real price difference there too. You know, you can get a set of the, you know, more generic, cheaper ones, you know, probably a set of five to seven filters for, I'm guessing under a hundred dollars. Whereas yeah. one Lumicon filter is probably about the same price, you know, $80 is my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, not quite. Not quite. I, I was looking this week because uh, I had a student that was that was asking about filters. And I said, yeah, if, if you're looking for a set and they have an 80 millimeter, I said, uh, go and get the these ones. And they were 146 American for four. Now, okay. since Farpoint took over, though, I noticed that they're, they've replaced the number 21, uh, which is an orange filter with the number 25, which is a light red. Mm. And um, in, my, in my opinion whatever it's worth i think the number 21 is a better uh, mate for smaller instruments so uh my, my recommendation is to get them to replace that with a number 21 if we'll honor that price but 150 bucks american you know you're probably 200 bucks canadian so yeah you're looking at about 50 bucks canadian filter yeah. and um so i think they're about twice the cost but like you were saying i i won't even use non-lumicon color filters Mm -hmm. um, these, these contrast boosters and the Solastar Mars filter are specialized filters, but all the other filters I use, uh, they're, they're Lumicon. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it will go in the long run with Lumicon. They seem to be changing stuff around a lot. I I'd written them an email back in the, in the spring. They were a long time getting back to me. Um, they, they wouldn't provide the part that I wanted. Um, so I, I don't, I mean, we'll see, we'll see where they go. I, you know, they've just really taken it on and, and hopefully they will, uh, continue to produce and manufacture uh, some of their gear because um, regardless of who's owned Lumicon over the years, I've been a huge fan. I think they produce absolutely the highest quality gear. And uh, and really it's it's the gear that isn't, it tends to not be the most expensive pieces of gear that you're going to order. And so even though it might be on the higher end uh, or maybe mid-range pricing, I think that it actually is, in my experience anyway, some of the best components like as you know, I love their diagonals. They're kind of mm -hmm. hard to get. Um, seemed like they were going out of style. So I actually bought two this past year because um, I think their diagonals are bar none the best mirror diagonals that, that I've ever looked through. So um, I've got a little stable of those, <laughs> of those now, but um, I won't go into a, had a part problem with them. But uh, I think their other gear, like the filters, I think are excellent too. But I think you bought a Lumicon filter this past year, didn't you? Yeah, I'm trying to think what color now. Um, it was I, bought, a, I thought it was a light pollution filter, like a UHC or something. Uh, yeah, or was it an O3? I can't remember. That was, was a two inch. Yeah. And then I did okay. buy some color Lumicon filters, like planetary hmm. stuff, one or two. And then I purchased three Bader, which are basically like they're made of yeah. the shot glass and, you know, have a lot yeah. of the, you know, there's coatings on them. There's all sorts of stuff to improve the view. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Cool, cool, cool. So I've also been working on my sketching. This is uh, that other business I was talking about. And um, we've been observing the, the, the South Polar Cap, myself and a, and a few other observers and communicating via email. And uh, one thing we noticed, or I noticed anyway, is that maybe the uh, part of Mars that is facing us right now um, just has that po the polar cap isn't right on. Like, I don't, I don't know how close it is to the pole. To me, it seems like it's a bit off center or it's at least off center the way that it rotates around to us so that um, 
when one of the uh, when one of the faces of Mars is facing us, we get it. It's much further out, and then when it uh, it's sort of around the other side, like where Certus Major is, it's kind of tucked in, sort of almost almost right at the pole, so or or what appears to be at the pole. So it's a little bit more of a challenge. But I find like when I'm out sketching, um, kind of what I sketch at the eyepiece, and then I come inside, it's uh, it's not, it doesn't seem like what I sketched and, uh, and then I'm trying to get finer details. So there's, there's sort of two challenges I'm finding there. So what I've begun uh, to do is do, uh, two sets. So if I'm drawing Mars, I'll do two circles on a page, um, about two or so inches in, in diameter. And then I go out at the eyepiece and I, and I do a sketch. Um, and when it's minus 20, I got to say, I'm coming in every 15 or 20 minutes to warm up for five minutes anyway. So mm -hmm. then when I go in, I redo that sketch and then um, I'll do a final sketch of it like the next day or if I decide to stay up af after I observe. And so I end up with sort of a, a, a little bit of a, a set or a series of all the same sketches and kind of kind of a progression. Um, and I think that's helping. Uh, that's definitely helping get get the detail. But there's there's been some there's some uh, little sort of I don't know what you call them like the little bits that kind of come streaming off of Certus uh, Major and from time to time I can kind of see those at 175 or 180 power. So I'm trying to figure out the best way to capture those because you get them and then they fade out. They're just they're just there and it's almost like did I just see something and then it comes back and you're like yes and then but I find when I'm sketching I'm kind of looking and sketching and looking and sketching and it's, I find that more, more difficult to take in because it's finer detail, which is, I find harder to sketch because I'm not an artist. And then uh, as well, it, it's not there for, for very long. So um, I, I don't get a good, a good view, but, uh, but anyway, that's, that's kind of what I'm working through um, with the sketching. And uh, I know we're kind of getting short on time, but I'm also looking at uh, like beginner telescopes because I, I have a nephew I'm kind of looking at, at maybe uh, a little telescope where I know he doesn't listen to this podcast so I think we're safe um, and I know you my I've been going back and forth so maybe at some point we'll do a bit on on uh, beginner telescopes because you know it's really surprising like if you want to get a really high-end expensive telescope you can go on and find tons of reviews and it's really easy to navigate that in many ways. But when it comes to the, uh, the, the, the lower cost, more beginner oriented equipment, um, it's, it's more challenging to navigate. And I thought it was just me because I'm not used to kind of looking at that type of gear, but, uh, you know, I kind of know what I like now. And then it's kind of, you're like, wow, like there's not that many inexpensive eyepieces that have decent eye relief and a wide field of view and get a good review that aren't really bad eyepieces. And, so anyway, I'm kind of going through that. And anyway, I think I've kind of settled on something. So maybe we can discuss that in a future, a future episode it might be interesting. Yeah, I, I love that idea. And uh, the timing is, is good too, right? We have Christmas coming. So some folks may be looking at purchasing a telescope as a gift. And if we can maybe help point people in the right direction, I think that's awesome. So yeah, let's, let's take that offline and we'll do something. We'll, we'll do that real soon. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. So uh yeah, when I sat down to to put these notes together last night, Shane, I thought, man, I have nothing to talk about. 
<laughs> it always starts that way, right? We're like, what are we talking about? And here we go. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I, I guess, well, part, part of it is I find that I'm almost to the point now, especially with Mars, the way it is that I'm, I'm doing so much observing and I'm getting, and my apologies for cutting off. I'm just getting kind of tired, right? Cause I've mm -hmm. been getting up at three and, uh, and sometimes I observe and sometimes I don't, but sometimes I don't fall back asleep. So I'm not getting as, as much sleep as, uh, as I probably should. I was going to say as much as I want to, but what I really want to be doing is not sleeping at all and observing Mars all the time right now. And sometimes it yeah. can kind of seem that way. So yeah, it's all yeah, right. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, what is it? Two more weeks, three more weeks of probably good Mars observing. So we just, you know, the message I think to everybody is get out there and look at it as much as you can, because, you know, the, the opportunity is now, and then we'll be waiting two years for the next good yeah. opportunity. And what is it? 14 years for the next real good opportunity. something like that. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Did I lose you? Oh, no, I think I lost you, but anyway, we're back. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Anything you wish to share at the end of the show, Shane? No, that's it, Chris. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. How can people stay in touch with us? And Hey, we're getting some questions. That's really exciting. We'll do another question show show soon. Shane. <laughs> <laughs> that's a tough alliteration. There. <laughs> wow. That is really crazy. All right. Any, yeah. Um, yeah people you, can reach us on Twitter. We are at actual astronomy. People can email us actual astronomy at gmail.com. And uh, you can leave reviews or comments on the podcasting apps, which would be great. And uh, yeah, as you mentioned, we will do another mailbag episode in the future here. So we've got a, a questioner or two queued up. If people have other questions, please email us and, you know, we reply to each email, but then we'll address all of the questions as well on a future episode. Yeah, I saw one and uh, just a great question um, that, that somebody had sent in. And I, I really want to spend like 10 or 15 minutes digging into it. So yeah, I look forward to that. All right. Well, thanks so much, Shane. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. And thanks everybody for listening. <laughs>